Yahoo announced a security breach affecting upwards of 1 billion user accounts. Cyber attack leaves 145 million eBay users at risk. Target announced up to 110 million customers may have had their identity and financial information compromised. Cyber security breach at Equifax could affect 143 million American consumers. And now your host, Nexus IT Group. Welcome back to Hacked into the Minds of Cybersecurity Leaders. This is your host, Ben Hotelling with Nexus IT Security Group. Today, we have a very special guest, the first ever CISO for the city of Austin, Texas, Kevin Williams. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Really excited to chat with you about the challenges of developing the CISO role and how things have changed within uh, your org since it started. So let's get things kicked off, learning a little bit more about your career in cybersecurity and how you got to the position you are today. So I grew up as a child of the computers in the 80s and early 90s, back when hacking was, you know, the, the pure original term, you know, meaning we just wanted to get in there and learn a system from the inside out. There really wasn't anything malicious about it. You know, the worst things we ever did was uh, phone freak long distance and learn to kick people off dial-up modems so we could get ahead in door games. In high school, I was a classic underachiever, undiagnosed ADHD, and so I barely got out of high school, and the only way I could afford college was to enlist. So I joined up as a computer programmer in the Air Force, but that was exactly what I needed. It taught me discipline and professionalism and servant leadership, which, uh, you know, I've used throughout my career. Did half the time in space and missiles, the other half the time in intelligence, which is how I got into the security world. Worked on the global intrusion detection systems for the Air Force and Marine Corps, Enlistment was up, was accepted into a master's program, sounded like a good time to get out. From then, I worked as a security consultant at a boutique firm, worked for uh, University of Texas at one of the health science centers, worked for uh, Frost Bank, worked for the Department of Information Resources, which is the IT group at the state level, working for the CISO of the state. Ended up at Rackspace Hosting, uh, where I was for the last five years prior to joining the city. So worked in finance, healthcare, education, defense, IT. So very broad depth of experience leading up to it. Sounds like a unique yet very impactful way of getting into it. Let's just learn a little bit more about your story. Uh, being selected for tackling the incredible task of being the first ever CISO for an organization the size of the city of Austin over 15,000 employees. So let's hear the story. How did that happen? And you know what rolled out ever since you became that, uh, that individual in November 2015? Yeah, so I'd, I'd reached a point in my career that I think a lot of people can relate to where I was sitting with almost 20 years experience, a degree, certification, but I was still in a position where I was the equivalent of you know an entry-level manager, right? I and mean, the company I was working for was kind of that sweet spot in between being a startup and being publicly traded and, uh, you know, having that struggle that companies in that position deal with of, you know, how do we maintain culture but still become a corporation? And so I was in the spot where I'm qualified to be a director or above, but because of the way the culture is, you know, they only raise you one level at a time. So I started looking for positions, right? I started uh, applying for director level positions wherever I could find them, uh, you know, to try to get that career growth. And I, you know, on a whim, applied to be the CISO of the city of Austin, never thinking that, you know, this was, you know, an actual thing that would happen. Come to find out, they gave me a call back. And so I had a two-hour phone interview with 
the headhunting company that they hired uh, out of state because they wanted to uh, make sure they had a comprehensive uh, you know, search for the right candidates. Apparently, I nailed that because a month later, I got a call back to go to an interview. Uh, so went into a panel interview, uh, thought I did really good, but got no feedback whatsoever because of all of the you know, civil service and union laws and whatnot. You know, they have to make sure that every interview happens identically to everybody else. So there's no kind of deviation from script. Waited another month later, got another call back, went back in for another panel interview. <laughs> so this kept going a, a couple more times. They had uh, the top three candidates come in and do a 20-minute presentation for their first 90-day plan. So was told I had 20 minutes to give the presentation and there'd be uh, you know, 10 minutes of Q&A. I go in there and through my uh, experience with the military, learning to brief incredibly efficiently and, and having the tendency to talk very fast, I knocked through it in like 12 minutes and then they asked questions for five. And so I was out the door before 20 minutes was up and I couldn't tell if that was good or bad. <laughs> so waited around another month and then I got a call back again. And so then I you know, went out to a one-on-one lunch with the uh, CIO of the city who ultimately is my boss and he offered me the job. But altogether, it took well over six months. The part of that is, is the speed of municipal government and part of it is how thorough they were looking for the candidates. You know, I asked, I asked my boss, the CIO at the time, why now? Why are you hanging this at this moment? Because I had done research on my end, and, you know, living in Austin and searching the web and whatnot, I couldn't find any instance of some big incident that would force them to hire a CISO, which wasn't the case. Uh, you know, what he told me was that if we are going to be treated like a big city, we need to start acting like it, and we need to start getting these kind of positions that we've never had before. I also found out that in his six, eight years as the CIO, I was only one of two external hires for IT executive positions they've ever had. And so I was very intentionally brought in to be a disrupting influence. There's a great number of civil servants that worked there for 10, 20 years and maybe the only job they've ever had. So having outside experience come in and say, yes, I know this is the way you do it, but this is the way the industry is moving. This is what they're doing in the private sector. That's, that's very valuable in the civil service community. Do you think that's strictly because of your, your military background and being that disruptor working for a, an organization previously that was a, a highly successful and, and really disruptive organization in itself led to you being selected for the, the CISO role? Or what was it that, that you think, looking back, made it that, that you were the guy for the job? Sure. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a combination of, of both. So on the one hand, I had worked for a year and a half for the CISO of the state of Texas. And so he was a, a former FBI agent who did like bank fraud. His number two was a you know, retired Navy navigator. His number three who ran the, the SOC was a retired California Highway Patrolman. And so I, as like the program manager of statewide incident response, I could easily say that I was the top technical security person within the state. For that year and a half, I, my phone number, my cell phone was literally the 24-7 emergency contact on the website. So if there was any incident at any state agency, I was the, I was the incident commander. You know, I always explained it as I was the sane person in the room where everybody else's heads was on fire, right? I was the person trying to remind them like, hey, have we called the attorney general? Have we quarantined this, you know, we got the lawyers on the phone, you know, what have you. Having that kind of 
breadth of experience and awareness and, uh, you know, understanding of, of how the system was working, you know, certainly helped in having that kind of professionalism and being able to go into the network floor and find out what's going wrong, but then going over to the executive and being able to brief them is an invaluable skill. And then coupled with the fact that I was coming from the private sector. So I had been working for a leader in the cloud space and was bringing that kind of what was, at least to the civil service side, you know, cutting edge technology where they might not have had that kind of experience. Like I, you know, I, I joke with a lot of people that I was in a meeting very early on with the city and asked about software-defined networking, and they told me that they felt that that was too new of a technology and they weren't comfortable with it yet. And mm-hmm. I looked it up and I was like, uh, Gartner's been tracking this for 15 years. <laughs> so if that tells you anything about the newness when you start getting into the, the, the civil service sector. One thing I'm really curious about is the designing of your role. Was that laid out for you when you you stepped in? Did you know exactly what your tasks were and and what the role looked like for you? Or did you have to come in and actually design and and create your role in order to be effective in it? Yeah, it's definitely the latter. Prior to me getting hired, you know, there was kind of a cabal think tank of like the, uh, you know, the thought leaders already in the space. The way we were set up in the city is that there was the infrastructure security team, which was part of the operations division of the citywide IT department, which was about a dozen to 15 people. And then you had three small pockets of six people in energy, a couple in health, a couple at the airport. But really, that was all of the, of the actual people with formal security job titles, right? And so kind of the manager of those three departments kind of got together and sat down and said, okay, you know, if, if we're going to hire this person, what do we want from them? And they kind of briefed the CIO and were able to provide uh, guidance on what they were looking for. Coming in, there was nothing defined at all. And so it was, it was just, uh, you tell us <laughs> what this looks like. So, you know, I spent the first year focusing on the governance and the policy side of the house, not on establishing enterprise programs, because as part of that, that 90-day assessment that I did, it became very obvious very quickly that trying to break down those long-standing institutionalized barriers of this is the way we do business is going to be the hardest part. And so I needed to make sure that I had policy and standards to back it up so it wasn't just me saying we should do this, you know, that I could uh, point back to NIST and what have you, but also having governance behind it. So we, you know, we stood up a security council made up of those, those same managers I mentioned before, the security teams, as well as building out operating boards to focus on certain key focus areas of security, such as physical security, right? Going and finding the manager within our building services department who is responsible for the keys and the cameras and the guards and empowering him by now saying like, hey, you've always gotten the building managers together to discuss these things. We're not going to change that. All I'm going to do is now charter it as our physical security operating board. So that way, if we go to actually try to implement those enterprise security programs and somebody says, well, who said you could do this? I could say, hey, it's not me. I've got 18 other departments that all sat in a room and agreed it's a good idea. That's where we were a year ago. Now this year, we're focusing on establishing those enterprise-wide systems. The primary focus now is building out a SOC, 
which we never had before. We really would like to, you know, emulate kind of like the stuff that they're doing in LA where they have a regional sock. Uh, we've got a bunch of little incorporated townships around us. Um, I was talking to one, they have 25 computers. So that would, that's a blip on the radar. There'd be nothing for us to, to monitor. You know, we're looking to kind of emulate what we already do for emergency response, right? These little townships, they don't have 911, they don't have fire departments, so they get that from the city. So why can't we do that for cyber, right? So why can't we provide that kind of first responder, but on the virtual side for them. That's where we are now. We just rolled over the fiscal year, so we secured some funding from the city council to start getting some of those services. We can't possibly provide 24-7 monitoring, uh, you know, with the number of people we have. So we're going to have to reach out to managed services to help augment that. <laughs> to answer your question, no, nothing was laid out whatsoever. We had to uh, figure it out as we went. Now, the transition from who was managing and, and leading the cybersecurity initiatives previously. I assume that was the CIO? Yes, I suppose uh, that's who would have been identified. There was no CISO prior to me being hired, so they really didn't even have the right language to discuss it. Kind of the, the thing that started this whole ball rolling with me getting hired was the city auditor did an inspection, and one of their findings was we needed an IT risk management plan. And one of the answers to how they were going to manage IT risk was to hire a CISO. So I came on board and the closest thing they had to, you know, a corporate security team was our infrastructure security team. But they were very much on the operational side of the house. They were very much in the space of issuing VPN accounts, managing firewalls, that kind of stuff, right? Since I came on board, we realigned them underneath me. And we are um, making sure the, the people who are supposed to be doing those operational tasks continue to do them and trying to transition my team into the enterprise-wide policy risk assessment standardization kind of mindset, right? Not taking over those kind of programs, but just making sure the programs are getting done and they're getting done in alignment with the standards and policy stacks that we follow. So we've adopted through our, our governance model, the Texas Administrative Code 202, which is the state-level cybersecurity policy, because we uh, wanted to use NIST, their cybersecurity and risk management frameworks. And then our next thought process was, well, okay, we need a policy stack that aligns with NIST. Well, the state just spent two years writing that. So it made sense where we would just adopt that by proxy and then just go in and have like a translation document that anytime it says state agency, it means city department. Anytime it says the Department of Information Resources, it means the communications department for the city or what have you. So that is kind of helping us develop that roadmap of what the security program is going to look like. And more importantly, because we have this distributed model with 40 some odd departments with different compliance regimes from HIPAA, PCI, FERPA, NERC, SIP, FAA stuff over on the airport side of the house, right? NIST seemed to be the one common denominator. So this way I could tell the energy department, hey, uh, whatever you guys are doing, as long as it aligns with NERC SIP, then it's going to align with NIST and it'll, it'll fit into the larger citywide strategy. Gotcha. So definitely doesn't sound like there was any sort of formal passing of the torch for the you know, overarching initiatives yeah. that, that you no, were. No, not on. at all. Okay. Gotcha. No, very interesting. How's the role change? It's 
changed in the sense of, well, it, it, it's kind of that, you know, you go from nothing to something that's like an infinite percent improvement, right? You know, you know, I'm still in this kind of grassroots driven face-to-face influential leadership position where I do a lot of, hey, uh, the, the team is looking to set up this process or this standard or this policy. We know it's going to affect these four departments. Great. I will personally go over there and talk to them to make sure we're all in the same field. You know, everybody's in agreement with what's going on, right? Because there was no precedent for this. And because I can't point back to city code or what have you, and it, it's not, a, you know, a default assumption that happens, I've got to explain why we're doing it and what have you. Uh, I report to the CIO. We are administratively part of the city's IT department, even though we have purview citywide over things that aren't necessarily IT, you know, such as uh, security investigations, policy standards, physical security, stuff like that. So every once in a while you run into a situation where somebody's like, why are a bunch of IT people talking to me about this non-IT thing? And then so we've got to kind of explain that because it's not as common knowledge yet, right? So we're still trying to get people to think in these terms. I try to push back a lot anytime people throw out terms like cybersecurity, because I think that a lot of times that unfairly categorizes it as an IT discussion. Of course, it's appropriate when it's appropriate, but when we talk about information security as a whole, sometimes I think we do ourselves a disservice by focusing on the cyber side of the house. You know, I like to tell people at the end of the day, it's our job to change human behavior, right? To change, you know, people either not caring or not paying attention or having bad intentions. You know, at the end of the day, it's to to make those bad behaviors into good behaviors. So a lot of what I do is just authority through influence, right? It, it's just going in and convincing people it's the right thing to do. I've got a really good staff and we've got a good division of labor where I'm on the strategy side, they're on the tactical side. We are in constant contact and make sure that uh, you know the left and the right hand know what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I like how you defined your role. I think that it is a broadly misconceived notion that a, a CISO is strictly focused on internet, you know, attacks. I think that there's a, a lot more you know, to the role and in how you explained it certainly sheds a little bit more light on, on what you're actually working on. That's not all, you know, hackers from different countries trying to grab your information sure. over the internet. In general, now that you've been in the, the seat and seen how things have changed, you know, in general, not specific to your role, but how do you think the role of the CISO is going to change in the future, be it two years from now, five years from now, or even 10 years from now, if we can look that far? Yeah, I think the, the biggest things uh, are going to be around privacy and risk. In addition to not having me up to two years ago, they also don't have a defined privacy officer or risk officer. And so those are also two areas where we're trying to uh, bring some maturity around as well. Of course, there's lots of people in the city that talk risk, everything from workman's comp claims to insurance and contracts to project risk. But we realized that nobody was ever sitting those people down and saying, hey, when you say it's a high risk, does that mean the same thing as what she says is a high risk? Establishing a framework there, a common vocabulary and nomenclature so we're, we're, we're trying to help guide that discussion also through, you know, our governance and, and, and councils, because the risk-based discussions are what 
we should be having. All the decisions we make should be risk-based. They should be data-driven, right? Coupled with privacy. So that's obviously the biggest thing, especially in your previous episodes, there's been lots of folks talking about, you know, all the new EU guidelines and data breaches and, you know, disclosure notifications and what have you. And so that really is, is the key to all of this. Everything that we do is to make sure that something like that doesn't happen, right? You know, we've got an obligation to protect the residents' data that they've entrusted with us, right? You know, I'm one of those people. You know, I live here. I, I'm a homeowner, so it's, it's my information as much as anybody else's. And so the privacy is huge. That is the key to everything going forward, right, is we work a lot with our open data team and their platform and legal and our innovation office, letting people know that, like, hey, we need to make sure that not only are we collecting the right data, we're collecting only what we need to get the job done and no more, no less, right? And we need to protect that to the right standards when needed, you know, but not go overboard on it. Being able to navigate those kind of privacy issues, you know, something as as seemingly innocuous as setting up public internet connections in the library, but then having to stop and think about, okay, are we going to turn on logging to record what websites they're going to? Do we need that for incident response or do we not need to collect that because it's a privacy violation? On the filtering side, what websites can we filter? Can we not filter? You know, do they have an expectation of privacy to go to here or should we allow them to go to that kind of site? It's those kind of considerations that are, they have nothing to do with access. They have nothing to do with authorization. You know, it has to do with privacy and legal uh, uh, things and so on and so forth. We've already been talking that here in the near future, we should probably have a lawyer dedicated for the security side of the house, if not even embedded with our team, you know, to help navigate some of these waters. So yeah, that's where I see the role changing in in the near future is uh, is a greater emphasis on risk and especially privacy. Sure. Do you feel any sort of extra pressure knowing that legitimately your neighbor's data is in your hands? Or is it really no different than, let's say, an Equifax who has hundreds of millions of customers' data that they're working with? Yes. However, I wouldn't describe it as pressure. I think more than anything, it is. it makes it more real and more relevant. You know, we always joke that, you know, we get into computers because we don't like people, but now we end up spending our entire days just working with people, right? Being able to walk through the airport, like when I'm on vacation and looking around and thinking, you know what, I have purview over this, all of like how this works, this is totally within scope, you know, or going to something at the convention center, buying a comic book from somebody at a a comic book convention and thinking, hey, the Wi-Fi that his cell phone is connecting to to run my credit card we're securing that right now. Um, So I wouldn't say it's pressure. I think it's more a combination of it makes it very real and very tangible. That whole like, you know, I'm not just an owner, I'm a, you know, a customer kind of thing, you know. Right now, you know, I'm using power, I'm using, you know, network connectivity that is stuff that we have to maintain. And so it makes it very tangible. But the good side of that is you can get a good sense of job satisfaction and pride out of it. That's how we tend to win on the hiring and talent attraction side of the house. You know, we have a, a, a technology fellowship program right now 
which is designed for people that are industry professionals that are maybe a little burnt out with the private sector and maybe want to give back to their community. And so it's like a one-year guaranteed contract where, hey, come work for the city, work on a project for the year, you know, and you can feel good that you've done, you've given back to your community, right? And so that's where we tend to win out a lot, where it's, you want to have a tangible effect on the things around you, well, then you should work for the city. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. I, I think that you know, only yourself and individuals that are in similar seats feel that sort of ownership. I, I think that that's such a unique position and, and it's got to be empowering. Last question, we'll get into overrated, underrated. You know, Similar to, to you and your situation, what advice would you give someone who's interested in holding that CISO title? and having the responsibilities that come with that I've never had, you know, either that director level or above position before. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's exactly what happened to me. I, my last job. So, you know, at Rackspace, I was their application security architect. And then uh, right before I got hired as city, I was helping to design their customer facing managed security offering around compliance. But again, it was a manager level position. So I, I, I didn't have director level experience getting this job. But what I did have is I had a breadth of experience. You know, I could say that I did network administration. I did manage an entire network for like a college campus. I could say that I, uh, you know, ran a programming shop, worked in instructional design, putting software in classrooms, you know, worked as a pen tester, worked as a security consultant worked in incident response, worked intrusion detection, did AppSec coding vulnerabilities. So that kind of breadth of experience, I think, certainly helped because I, I know enough to be dangerous on all the different subjects. And then I think also a focus on not only the hard skills, but the soft skills as well, being able to talk publicly and hone your writing skills and uh, you know being able to bridge that gap between the technical side and the, the business requirements and being able to talk to the people on the floor of your network or programming shop, but then being able to translate that back to leadership and vice versa. That's what I would tell people to sell themselves on is being that jack of all trades, master of none. I uh, spoke at a, a 2600 conference in New York City many years ago, and um, one of the Mythbusters was there. And I always remember he said in his, uh, his talk that he's not an expert in any one subject but he probably knows more than a lot of the so-called experts, right? And so mm -hmm. I think having that kind of knowledge and, and a little bit of everything is, is certainly going to help, but also being able to translate that into business speak and business requirements. I see a lot of people that come up from the networking side of the house and a lot of things are black and white, right or wrong. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't turn this on. Whereas like from the academic side of security, you know, the first thing they're going to tell you is that security is a function of business. And so if the business says we're not going to do patching, then you've got to figure out a way to secure them with no patching. That's a valid business decision and may not be a great one, but you have to roll with the punches. The other thing would be getting into that spot where you're comfortable with ambiguity and you're comfortable with accepting a less than ideal situation because it's the realistic one. It's the one that's actually going to happen. That kind of professional maturity, I'm not sure what else to call it, is, is, is also a key. I've experienced a lot of junior IT people where they're just like, you know, 
this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. We must do it this way. And it's like, I agree with you. However, it's not going to happen. So we need to be, we need to accept what we can change kind of thing. Being able to articulate that kind of stuff in an interview is not easy. So that's also a challenge. I was laid off two weeks before Christmas, about 10 years ago, and I didn't get hired back on until, gosh, like February. Within that time frame, I was just sending out applications, having interviews, and then the job I ended up getting was in another city and had like an hour-long commute. So the entire time I had that job, I was applying and looking for something closer to home and, you know, having phone screenings every week and face-to-face interviews every month. And so I think doing that kind of stuff is also really valuable. We actually have a team policy, you know, that my, that my deputy sister came up with where she encourages every member of the team to apply for jobs outside of the city every year and try to get at least one face-to-face interview. Even if you have no intention of leaving, just to get that experience of talking to people, hearing what it is that they're looking for, so you can be comfortable talking about it and selling yourself. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of people that we talk to that are technical individuals really want to get into to management, into leadership. And a lot of the feedback we get when they go through interviews is you know, they don't have that practical business knowledge or the ability to think they're too technical. What can someone do to get over that hump? Is it strictly keeping your ear open and, and trying to understand and you know, ask pressing questions as to the why behind you know, what they're doing on a technical level? Or you know, what can someone do to gain that business knowledge and start thinking more business and less so technical and, and understanding why they're implementing a technical solution to solve that business sure, problem? Sure, sure. Yeah, I think some of it is just asking those kind of questions. Like you said, like, why are we doing this? Not as the like, I'm questioning your decision, but more like, I would love to know how you arrived at that decision, right? So a lot of shadowing and, you know, that, that kind of stuff. But I think a lot of people sell themselves short when it comes to resumes and stuff like that, where if you're like, hey, you know, I, I just, I work at the help desk, I just answer calls, you know, I, I don't have any management or leadership experience, but it's like, but you do. It's like, let's help, let's figure out how we can quantify that kind of thing, right? You know, it, it's your fielding these calls, but you're fielding calls for how many applications are you supporting? How many users? What's the reach of it? If that application's offline, how does that affect business process? I I think it's a lot of getting people to not just see, okay, is my job to pull this lever? No, your job is to pull that lever, but why are you pulling that lever? You know, what, what are the two, three steps down the road and being able to articulate the business need for that? I think coupled with volunteer groups and professional organizations, um, I think that's a great way to get leadership and managerial experience. ISC squared, ISSA, OWASP, InfraGuard, stuff like that, because you've got to do things like meetings and schedules and budgets and planning conferences and getting speakers in. And, uh, you know, I think that's a great way to get that kind of experience outside of your primary job. But then I would also, you know, focus on the differences between leadership and management is that those are two different skill sets. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of times we use the terms interchangeably, but I think it's important for people to understand what are they good at and what are they not good at? 
I would definitely say I'm more on the leader side of the house than the manager side of the house. You start talking to me about budget spreadsheets and everything, my eyes glaze over. But if you want to sit down and come up with a five-year strategy and talk about, hey, if we've got to get this past the board, we need to sell this guy on that one, and we need to sell her on this aspect of it, you know, I'm your man for that kind of stuff. That's why I've always been attracted more to the architecture side of the house. And then lastly, you know, just uh, servant leadership. You know, that was probably one of the most valuable things that the Air Force taught me was that before you can lead, you have to learn to be led. Basically the golden rule, you know, for business. Treat your employees like you wanted to be treated when you were an employee. So I think there's, there's a lot of room in professional organizations now to have roles and volunteer positions that may not necessarily be directly tied to your job per se. It's a big movement in the industry with employee resource groups focusing on how can we improve the culture for minorities or people with disabilities or things like that. And so I think there's a lot of ways you can volunteer for those kind of groups and get leadership experience that allow you to reach out cross-departmentally and stuff like that within your organization. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. I think that that's exceptional. So many people that we talk to, like I said, are very interested in making that transition and struggle to get over the hump. So I think that those are fantastic bits of, of info. Well, let's hop into everyone's favorite part of the podcast, overrated, underrated. Let's first start off with cyber war. Do you think that that is overrated or is that underrated? I think it's overrated. Like I said earlier, I worry about using the term cyber too much, but I think it's, it's unproductively sexy and exotic sounding when at the end of the day, <laughs> our real problems are people clicking on things they shouldn't click on, trusting emails they shouldn't trust, forgetting to do patching. They're very basic fundamentals. And I think for most of us on a day-to-day -day basis, that concept of state actors coming to get you is so far removed as opposed to people just making dumb mistakes. So I would definitely say it's overrated. Next one, having multiple CISOs within a single organization. Is that overrated or is that underrated? Um, I didn't even know that was a thing. Uh, <laughs> I would probably say overrated. Yeah, I, I I, I can't even imagine how something like that would work. Yeah, having another CISO focus on a separate unit seems tough. Last one, and we'll let you go. CISO coming from a technical background, is that overrated or underrated? Underrated. I think that was also one of the things that helped me land this job because I know a lot of other, you know, talking to people after the fact, you know, a lot of people that applied were existing city leaders. and we see this problem a lot in the public sector, not so much in the private sector, but it's still an issue there too, where you have people in charge of things that they don't actually know anything about the thing. Granted, I mean, I haven't written code since the VB6 days, but I know what it was like to write code. I remember, you know, what, you know, the difficulties I had to go through. And so having that kind of firsthand experience, I think is completely invaluable. So I would definitely say it's, it's uh, underrated. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. Hey, Kevin, it's been great. I think that you've shared yeah, some exceptional advice. You know, it's a lot of individuals. I think your story's awesome. You loved it. Thanks so much. It's been great having you. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. We want to thank everyone for listening to today's podcast brought to you by Nexus IT Group. If you're looking for a new career challenge, let's chat. If you're looking to hire new talent, reach out. 
Or if you just want to talk about cybersecurity, email us at info at nexusitgroup.com. Until next time, stay safe and stay secure.